Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. I'm in Washington, D.C. today with my sister and Share Strength co-founder, Debbie Shore. Hi, great to be here. And two really amazing guests. Lee Schrager is the founder of and the visionary behind the New York City Wine and Food Festival. That's how I know him, but he's also got a day job at Southern Glazers, uh, formerly Southern Wine and Spirits. Uh, Lee, we're really thrilled that you're with us. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here with you and Debbie. Uh, and Kevin Tian. Wow, what a reputation you have built in Washington, D.C. with your restaurant, Himitsu. Uh, it is my sister Debbie's favorite restaurant. It's hard to tell because sometimes she just gets excited about the last place she ate. I do, <laughs> but, but I've been talking about be this one. Her favorite. She's a been lot. talking about yeah. it a lot. Kevin, we're thrilled that you're with us. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor. Um, we've got a bunch of things to talk about here, and uh, one of them that I want to get to because everybody all weekend has been talking about the tragic death of Anthony Bourdain. Uh, and I know, Lee, that's somebody that you knew and worked with pretty pretty closely over a lot of years. Uh, but let's come back to that because first I want to talk uh, just about uh, each of your paths. You've been so remarkably successful. And, Lee, uh, you didn't start out in the culinary industry, right? That wasn't um, the plan, at least initially, certainly when you were in school. Well, when I was in school, I had no plan. You know, my plan was to get out of school. This was uh, in New York or Florida because you lived in both, right? Well, we lived in New York on Long Island until I was 15 and then moved to uh, Plantation, Florida. So my goal, I mean, I, I never thought that I'd have a college career. I just really figured I would get out and wing it, but that was not my parents' plan for me. I had to get a college education or at least some type of degree, hence how I ended up in the Culinary Institute, which will go back to your conversation about Anthony Bourdain. We were classmates there. Um, but So you were classmates in culinary school? We were with classmates Anthony in Bourdain. culinary school. Um, and what year was that? I started in 77, and he was about a year ahead of me, but we took some of the same classes. So I met Anthony, I'll say, in 78. Um, and, but and you back know, up a little bit in terms of how you ended up in culinary school. Well, I ended up in culinary school because I did not want to go to college. I was adamant that I didn't want to go to college. And when I was young growing up, uh, in those days, in high school, you had to, boys had to go to a wood shop class. And girls had to go to home economics. That, those were one or two classes a day. And I was deathly afraid of woodshop class. I hated the saw. I was afraid I was going to cut my fingers off. I just was petrified of that. And um, <laughs> I remember uh, you know, coming home and saying to my mom that she had to get me out of woodshop class, and I wanted to be in home ec instead. And... You know, and there were no boys in home ec. There were I'm no guessing. boys in home ec. You know, in those days, boys weren't becoming chefs. It's a different day. It's long before Food Network or Food TV in general. Um, and my mom went to school and told them that her son, you know, had a phobia against saws, and um, I had to go to home ec. And that was really the beginning of my career, my love and finding a passion in the kitchen. Yeah. So tell us, uh, what what do you can you remember back to walking into the home ec class? And being the only guy there, uh, it had to take some guts to do it in a way. Um, but do you remember what it looked like, what it felt like? You know, I don't remember my first day in home ec, but I do remember my last day because I had a teacher. Her name was Linda Darnell, um, who really was the greatest influence on my life. You know, she kind of saw a saw something, recognized something in me that no one had recognized and gave my parents the direction to look into the Culinary Institute of America, which without that, I pro you know, I don't know what I would have been doing. So she um, pointed you in that direction. Absolutely. My parents had never heard of the Culinary Institute of America. I had never heard of it. And in 19, or did anyone else? It was a new right. school. And, you know, 
it's not like it is today where kids want to go to the CIA or Johnson Wales. No one went there. I mean, when when I told people I was going to the CIA, they thought I was going into the you know, uh, <laughs> right. um, become a spy. Right. You know, and you know, it was a, girl, a room of twenty four girls and me. And um, but you know what? I found my uh, balance very quickly there, and I found a passion, and I found a direction that's something that made me happy. And I, as I said, you know, I think you need to be happy and like what you do every day. And although I knew I never wanted to be a chef, which I never wanted to own a restaurant. I have owned restaurants. I didn't want to. Um, I knew that I would take the education from the Culinary Institute and the relationships, and I knew that they would all play into you know my career later on. And there's not a day that they don't play. You know that culinary background and that background. Um, you know everything I learned from the CIA doesn't play into what I do today. I grew up around good food. My mom um, <clears throat> is a good cook. Uh, we were always, you know, even in the worst of times, we, you know, food was always important. And, it, you know, I think it's why food is so important to me today. Everything that importance, everything that's important in someone's life or my life has circled around the meal. Good news and bad meal, bad you know, news always takes place around the meal. Is there, is there a standard thing that culinary schools, you know, want to teach people? Like, what's the first thing that they want to teach people how to make? The mother sauces. The basic mother sauces, okay. uh, which I could not remember. Kevin's probably I, I know one, one was the holidays of bechamel of velouté, <laughs> bechamel. Uh, yeah. something like that. But you know, a roux, a roux, of course. Um, do you know what that is, Billy? No, thank you. You don't, do you? Yeah. But this actually came up once before. So a roux is flour and butter. It's like how you and our producer was right, horrified right, right, that right. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> no. Woody. So you know, when we went to school, no one, no one was. When you went to a class and they asked you what you wanted to be, people wanted to be what your father was. So you wanted to be an accountant, Mm -hmm. a lawyer, a salesman, a fireman. No one wanted to be a chef. Now today you go to a school, a junior achievement class or any, you know, uh, high school, a junior high program and everyone wants to be, you know, the girls want to be Giada or Rachel and the boys yeah. want to be Emeril or Bobby. And that's, you know, it's it, that what a difference. I mean, when we mm-hmm. grew up, it was the Galloping Gourmet, Graham Kerr. Yeah, that's right. There uh, were a few. And Julia right. Child. And Julia Child. That, was, that it. was it. No one wanted to be Graham Kerr right. or Julia Child. <laughs> and now, you know, uh, and now today, you know, 40 years later, everyone wants to be. Uh, Kevin, how about you? Where did it start, uh, the love of food and the passion for cooking? Uh, man, I guess it started when I was younger. I was always in the kitchen with my grandma and my mom. They were always around us, though, feeding our family. This is where? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I kind of grew up everywhere. A uh, military kid, born in Texas, lived in Hawaii, Seattle, California. But I spent a lot of my time in Louisiana, and then I moved from Louisiana up to D.C. Okay. And Louisiana has a culture of passion for food. Yeah. Uh, Louisiana has amazing food. And Were you uh, in New Orleans? I was in New Orleans for Katrina for school, so I was displaced, actually, uh, for Katrina. And I wow. actually, no one in our restaurant has gone to culinary school except for Carly, uh, but Carly runs our beverage program. And the rest of us in the kitchen, we actually have a four-year degree, and half of us have advanced degrees. Uh, so you learned from your mom and your grandmother, at least, were initial influences? Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, uh, a lot of us, we worked in kitchens to pay our way through college, uh, and that's where we get the bulk of our experience. You know, uh, you know. There's always. I think there's two paths. You can go to culinary school, uh, which is amazing, and then, and there's always something I've wanted to do. Uh, but you know, to to please my parents, they wanted me to go to a, a four-year university. I did that, and I got my experience from working in different restaurants. And. Lee, sometimes we'll have to compare notes about uh, our phobias about power tools because I have the same <laughs> fear. I've got a I've got a son who's a seventh grader and he takes wood shop and he's 
passionate about it, so we're always going to Home Depot and buying things. And I'm terrified of the drills of yeah. the saws of the whole thing. Well, I, don't, Billy, I don't want them our, to be our anywhere father. Around. It came from our dad. No, that's I mean, just he, not something we knew. No, yeah, we yeah. just. I guess our, our parents, right. our relatives, right. they couldn't do that. But so. Kevin, it wasn't a fear of power tools that sent you into the into the kitchen, right? It was just this passion that came from your from your home. And tell us a little bit about um, just some of the kind of culinary opportunities you've had along the way. What were some of the formative influences in terms of your career? Because you'd worked with some amazing, amazing chefs. Uh, I, back in Louisiana, my first restaurant job was a restaurant called Tsunami. And that restaurant really influences on my relationship that I have with my staff. Uh, you know, I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana. It's a small hometown. Everyone there is family. And that restaurant brought that sense of family to me. And I wanted to create that in, in Himitsu. Uh, and that's the biggest thing I took away uh, as far as the food is concerned. Uh, it's kind of from everywhere I've worked from my short time at Uchi, uh, working at Oyumel with Jose Andres, uh, all the various Japanese restaurants I've worked at in between, and uh, even working at Momofuku for a short period of time. You know, uh, Himitsu, while we are Japanese inspired, it's really just a reflection of kind of like my growth from cooking in high school all the way up until now. And it was always in the back of your mind that you were going to open your own restaurant, or did that um, just evolve naturally? It was always in the back of my mind. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, I kept it locked there, right? And you got to get the 9 to 5. You got to get the the corporate job, the 401K, the benefits. And I actually left cooking, and I did that. And I had an amazing job uh, working in an office 9 to 5, Anything, you, everything you can ask for, great pay benefits, Yada yada yada. I'd love to know what your schooling was like, and also how you manage what seemed to be this real tension of always dreaming about food, but having to do something else. You know, what was your first job out of college? When I was in school, uh, I didn't really pay too much in, uh, in my classes. You know, all I could do was think about, man, as soon as I'm done with class, I'm gonna go to work. Uh, I'm gonna get to work the line. I'm gonna cook, and and that's what kind of got me through the day, through my classes. Uh, and I knew I wanted to get school over with as as quick as I could. So I I did just enough studying uh, to graduate. I got a my 9 to 5 job and it was the kind of the same thing at work. Uh, clock in, can't wait to get off of work and even though I worked Monday through Friday Saturday and Sunday I still took a, a part-time job in a restaurant and I, I cooked on the weekends. I decided with my free time and instead of spending it with friends and family I was going to go work with uh, the friends and family in the restaurant. I was working in the management development program at Geico uh, doing auto damage, but uh, I wasn't satisfied with myself. So I decided to quit my quit my job and go back into cooking, uh, you know, and give it another shot. Worked for a couple different restaurants. Uh, the last one was Pineapple and Pearls, working uh, mm. with Aaron Silverman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Working in their morning cafe. And then I had a opportunity to open up uh, Himitsu in uh, where it is on Upshur. And originally it was meant to be a, uh, a short-term six-month lease for me to kind of be myself and be creative uh, and for Carly for her to be herself and be creative. And then, you know, we gave birth to this restaurant and, you know, things kept uh, it It's such an going. extraordinary place. You know, I, I went, I've been twice, and the first time I went, um, Carly, whose name I didn't know, but she's the beverage director. Is that right? Yeah, Carly's the... Yeah, so she greeted me at the line and just made me feel like, you know what, we're going to get you in. It's going to be great. And I guess one of the things that struck me after, during the meal, and tell me if I'm if I'm getting this right, it is very similar to me to Rose's Luxury 
in that you've got small plates that are imaginative and wonderful that you just want to come back and have each one again the next day. Reasonably priced, two big plates, and it really felt like a almost like a bookend in a way, obviously with your mm-hmm. mark on it. Nothing the food is very different, but the feeling in the restaurant to me was similar. And for me, that's what I want to get across the most is uh, the experience you get from dining. Uh, you know, the beverages are great and the food's great, but it doesn't matter how good your food is and how good the drinks are. If you can't have that experience yeah. in a restaurant, then it doesn't matter in the end. So for us, we're always trying to create an experience for everyone that comes in. And describe, comes across. Well, describe what you want that experience to be. Like what feeling is somebody taking away when they, when they leave the Mitsu? Uh, it's a feeling of comfort. Yeah, had a good time. I always like to tell the staff, like, hey, everyone that comes to that door, imagine them. you're inviting them over to your house for dinner. So you want them to have a good time, to remember this night for a long time. Lee, you, you had a vision a number of years ago that chefs like Kevin could be at the heart of something really big, which turned into first the, the Food and Wine Festival in Miami, and then the New York City Wine and Food Festival. These Festivals have a very important society impact because they raise a lot of money for charitable activities, but uh, including Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign. I, I'm interested to hear you describe it because I find it hard to describe in the sense that they so exceed people's expectations. When you go, it's so much bigger and better than you can possibly imagine that words almost do, don't do it justice. But what was the impulse behind starting such a a massive festival in the first place and paint us a picture of what it looks like and how chefs like Kevin fit into it. Well, two questions. I guess the first point, how did it start? Um, when I turned 40, Stephen and Barbara Reichland, if you remember Stephen Reichland, the barbecue Bible guy, barbecue planet, one of the most famous barbecue chefs, he had been going to Aspen for the Aspen Classic, which was is presented by Food and Wine magazine. So from my 40th birthday, Stephen and his wife took me as their guest to Aspen which I had never been to before. So the Aspen Food and Wine the Festival, Food which Wine was Festival. pretty well established by then, I'm well, assuming? Well, Aspen's or? 35 years. Okay. So uh, South Beach is 18, New York okay. is 11, so significantly longer. And I remember going to the Aspen event and thinking, wow, wasn't this amazing? The greatest chefs in the world and the most beautiful location. And I remember being on the plane. This is, this is long before there was email, I hate to say it, so I'm really dating myself. And I remember being on a plane thinking on the way back, well, you know, Aspen's a little tough to get to. You have to fly into Denver, take a plane that's always late or canceled, and, you know, there's always a weather issue in Aspen. I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a festival like Aspen on the beautiful beaches of South Beach? And that's really how the idea came. I remember making notes. I remember kind of scribbling notes. And I remember the next morning calling a friend of mine with the city of Miami Beach, Michael Aller, and saying to Michael, South Beach should have a wine and food festival like this. And that's really how it happened. Um, you know, 10 years later, we had the same conversation about New York City, which was pretty surprising that New York, which I consider to be one of the great food cities in the world, did not have a wine and food festival. And, of course, now I know why. Everything is so difficult in New York. I mean, it's like I'm, <laughs> um, I, I always say I'm going to write my next book is going to be called Why Not? Because I find myself saying every day, why not? Even 11 years later, it's like, why not? You know, there's always an issue in New York. It's a union issue. It's a venue issue. It's a tax issue. It's a city issue. It's a sanitation. It's a Department of Health. All of which adds up to a lot of expense, I'm sure. All of which adds up to a lot of expense and a lot of wasted time. You know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing in a lot of cities, and New York being one of them. And I think that's one of our great factors in producing New York City Festival 
is just dealing with the city, dealing with unions and finding venues that fit the number of people that we have and then finding venues that want to work with a charity and not-for-profit and not charging their rack rate and wanting to work with us. I, I know it's not easy to keep replicating these festivals, but, you know, California comes to mind as one I would imagine you considered just because it's also – the Before cuisine. New York, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, we were having... And the space, too, probably, right? Well, the, the issue with California, there are two issues. I mean, we were looking at New York City, uh, at L.A., before we were looking at New York. We'd actually had a deal in place with the city of West Hollywood to do a wine and food festival there. And then Southern Glazers, who I, as you said earlier, I, I'm an employee of, we entered the New York market about 13 years ago. And the CEO, Wayne Chapman, said, you know, we should really focus in New York. We'll be much more important and more impactful. So we kind of changed our direction from California to New York City. Oh. But if you look at California all these years later, I mean, there's the L.A. Wine and Food Festival, which is still around, not prof- not terribly profitable. Pebble Beach Wine and Food Festival, which is much smaller. Uh, great, you know, great events, but just not profitable. You know, we, we talk about our events since the conversation we had earlier. You know, what we do is 100% not-for-profit. So we need to raise money. What's the one in Florida? So Naples. We, Naples. Na- Naples Wine and Food Festival. That I don't consider. Uh, that's like fake money. That's like dot-com money. You know, they raise such a crazy amount of money. It's all these rich people buying each other's wine mm-hmm. back and forth. You know, so you have a big <laughs> bottle of wine. You're, gotcha. you're selling it. You're buying it. You're buying it you're back. Right, you're right. It, it, yeah. Um, but a great, or, you know, really. You know, I think anyone who's doing it is great. You know, to me, I'm not critical. I go to an event, in my mind, if you can pull it off good for you, it's fantastic. I don't find fault. I don't look at them to judge. You know, I know what it takes to produce these festivals. I know what it takes to line up millions of dollars in sponsorships to produce these festivals or secure hundreds of chefs to do it. You know, chefs have become – it used to be that chefs were rock stars. Now rock stars are chefs. Right, right. And, Kevin, I was thinking about, you know, your place is small and you're the chef. So how do you – I know you have a sous back there, but is it easy for you to – participate in these kind of larger I know you're cooking at our dinner our no kid hungry dinner for example on Wednesday night so is it a huge strain for you to have to leave the restaurant and do some of these events and festivals uh, we've gotten used to it now uh, I think the toughest challenge for us is our limitation on space it's a very small restaurant you know it's the size of a one bedroom apartment and six tables is that right yeah six uh, tables and a small bar no. yeah so 24 seats total uh, you know we have a very small staff uh, we have six employees in the kitchen and we have five working at a time so whenever we go to these events it's just me and then i'll take my fiance with me and she's always you know bailing me out uh but you know there's there's a lot of great events in dc and you want to say yes to everyone and you want to help as much as you can if i had more staff or i could you know hire more sure if i had the ability to hire more staff and I would say yes to everyone. But, and, uh, and we keep away from chefs like Kevin for, for one reason. Right. Too we, small. We, he, listen, he has been on my radar. Kevin's name has been on my radar. But we know my brother eats in his restaurant. And he told me, he sent me to the first time he went, I remember him taking an Instagram story and putting it up there. And he said, you know, have we, we invited this guy. I'm like, it's a small restaurant. I, I said, he can't leave his restaurant. You know, to come down to South Beach or New York and do something, they're out of that place for three days in a row. And most people don't have the luxury of time or can afford to be away from their restaurants. And we don't even want to ask people to be put in that position. You know, we go after, listen, we'd love to do events with Young Guns or the Next Generation or, the, you know, the current top chefs. But you also know being out of their restaurants takes a toll yeah, on them, and it, we don't want to hurt their business. I have a feeling Kevin's going to eventually have a larger restaurant and more opportunity to to do some of these things. Well, I, I made a note writing coming, in this morning. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, when I was catching up on Kevin's, you know, online, I'm like, you know, we really have to, have to try again for South Beach to get him down. Um, 
paint a picture of um, one of the festivals. Let's use New York since that's the one that um, Share Our Strength benefits from. Just uh, you have fabulous events like there's an event called the Burger Bash and there's an amazing dessert events. Give, give uh, just a uh, how, how should we visualize what that event looks like? Well, I think as em- Emerald said it best, like it's like spring break for chefs. Is it Emerald Lagasse? Yeah, Emerald yeah. Lagasse, you know, spring break for chefs. You know, in New York, we have over 80 events. We have rooftop events, signature rooftop events that have 3,500 to 4,000 people. We have, uh, this year we're doing an event saluting women in the industry, you know, all women chefs, women winemakers, women mixologists, and we're working with the Me Too organization, so we'll really be celebrating women. On Friday night, we do our Burger Bash event that has 30 chefs doing their take on burgers and um, sponsored by Blue Moon Beer and Pat Lafreda Meats, and it's hosted by Rachel Ray. Saturday night, we'll celebrate 25 years of uh, Food TV, the Food Network, uh, with a party on the roof, a uh, late-night party on Saturday night, October 13th, with Alton Brown, Ina Garten, Bobby Flay, and Giada De Laurentiis hosting. And on Sunday, we'll have a family barbecue that will have Salt Bay, uh, the kind of the Instagram cessation, I think his real name is Nizret, uh, mm-hmm. the Turkish chef, and uh, with Jean George. So uh, then we have 27 dinners over the weekend, chefs like Joel Robichon, Alain Ducasse, Jean George. Daniel Ballou, Gabrielle Hamilton, Alex, you know, Alex Garnaschelli, yeah. Emma Lagasse. This is culinary yeah. royalty. So, you know, by the time we're done, we have 400. I, I counted on the train. It was 468 chefs participating in the festival um, throughout the weekend. Uh, we have late night cocktail events. We have a drag brunch with the Countess Luann. We have a green market brunch hosted by Jeffy Zuccarian. We have a late night sushi event hosted by Morimoto. We have a dessert party hosted by... Christina Tassi, uh, you know, there really is something for everyone at the festival from all price points, including kids programming. We're doing two events at the Kellogg store with Duff Goldman and the host of the uh, Today Show doing a breakfast pajama party. Um, so, you know, we, we have no, you know, uh, I, there's not an event. We do a fried chicken event with Whoopi Goldberg. So there's really something for everybody wow. and every price point. If you were pitching Chef Kevin to participate, what's what's your pitch? I'd love to hear it because, in other words, how do you get these amazing, amazing chefs to come do this? Well, I think the first thing that we're going to pitch them. Listen, and I guess that's the first thing. If I have to pitch, we don't want them. Okay, you you know, honestly, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, there's enough great chefs out there who want to do or who can do the festival. I have learned that we don't want to be at a venue who doesn't want to do it. We don't want to talk anyone into doing it. And the last thing we want to do is pull a chef out of his restaurant who feels uncomfortable because in the early days when we would do that, it only ended up in one of two things. They couldn't produce for the number of people. Like It would make no sense to put a chef like Kevin with the quality of food that he's doing and with the support staff at a Burger Bash event where he has to produce 1,800 burgers. He's not used to that. John George can do it because he can pull a big team. Alain Ducasse can do it because he can pull. And it's their teams. It's not you don't supply nothing. With we supply meat. I was going to ask you that. We don't. Okay. We don't. We don't pay. And you know it's hard. But the volunteers that you bring in, we provide volunteers. But are they working with the chefs? Absolutely. Okay. We provide culinary support. But you know chefs want to come with their team. It's very hard if you haven't been to the burger event. I'll use that as an example since it's a signature event to get a chef who hasn't done burgers for 1,800 people in a short period of time to produce that type of food because they're just simply not used to it without having their team. Doesn't mean that if we got him the right team, he couldn't do it. Kevin could you know, clearly do anything he wanted to do. Um, I think if I was going to extend an invitation to Kevin, I'd want him to do something that would make more sense and profile him. I would want to do a small intimate dinner. So I would say, hey, Ke-, I'd send him an email. Hey, Kevin, like I'll do in the train home, say, great to meet you today. <laughs> you, 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 you know, we'd love to do something. If you could cook with anybody 
anybody, you know, is there somebody that you've wanted to cook with and haven't wanted to cook with, haven't cooked with yet? And if we were going to invite you, who would that person be? And if we can get that person, would you want it? So who would you want to cook with? Yeah, who would that be? Right off the top of my mind, it would be Michael Gulotta from New Orleans. I love Michael Gulotta. I love his restaurant. You know, that's a great dinner I, I i have to tell okay, you. okay so okay, lee's okay. writing it down yeah, uh, yeah. We're so wait, t- tell happen. us about michael galata who i who i don't know uh, and so tell michael, us why you'd want to cook with him uh michael galata uh he has two amazing restaurants in new orleans uh mofo and uh may pop he cooks a lot of uh, vietnamese food yeah. and, and on my background i'm vietnamese and then he blends it with uh you know louisiana louisiana culture great and, chef mm. he's done south beach a few times actually it's a great pairing um I wouldn't necessarily, you know, we don't want a Vietnamese chef necessarily to do, I don't want to pair you with a Vietnamese chef. Everyone's expecting that. So it's easy to put you with a Charlie fan or somebody like that. I'd want to put you with somebody who's doing something, well, I guess I would say French, which we'd, you'd have like kind of an Indochine thing and put you with a classically change, you know, a trained French chef. Doesn't mean we wouldn't, you know, have two great Vietnamese or chefs who cook Vietnamese, but it's always nice to take somebody out of their comfort level and put you with somebody else. Um, no. That's how I think. You know, you know, and you know, uh, I, I think in the early days, you know, we would say to Ducasse, you know, who, which French chef do you want to cook with, or an Italian chef like Missy Robbins, who would you like to cook with, or a Todd English, who you know, what chef from Boston. Now we say, who haven't you cooked with, who you'd really think a collaboration would be great? And again, Michael Galata is a great, and he would not have immediately come to mind, although I'm a big fan of his. But I think putting you with somebody that would challenge you a little more to do something that. Doesn't necessarily go with your food, but would complement your food nicely. I would say uh, Jean Georges because he uses a lot of like Asian flavors in his food. Right, yeah. and you know certainly if you look at the spice market and the Perry Street, he kind of uh, has a great. And he's obviously well, not obviously, but married to a uh, an Asian woman, so he has a great Asian aesthetic. And it's, you know everyone, he's like a name. He's like one of those names every year that every year there's like a trend. Uh, we ask people who they want to cook with, and every year it's like four of the hot names. And John George is continuously on that list. I was going to ask you who who is the the number one preferred. I want to work with fill in the blank. Missy Robbins. This year was Missy Robbins. A hundred percent was Missy Robbins. Really? Yeah. She has a restaurant called Lily. Lily is in, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we were yeah. there last December. Yeah, I, I it was think extraordinary. Was, yeah, it's extraordinary. I fly into LaGuardia just so I can go to her restaurant. You were raving wow. about that place. Yeah, it was delicious. It was amazing. Um, so she was that buzzword in New York City this year. That's where so interesting. If we asked twenty chefs, ten of them came back with Missy Robbins, and she's not doing the festival this year because her restaurant is opening the week. She has a second restaurant opening, so she couldn't do the festival. But she was like that one name. But mm-hmm. right away, I got her to once she said no to New York. I guess. I said, you got to do South Beach. Um, so she's in for South Beach. Missy Robbins is big. Dominique Crenn from San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Delia Crenn. I think she was just rated one of the top chefs in the world at the 50 best. Oh, she will be next week for the 50 best of next week. Well, the number of yeah. chefs compared to when we started Share Our Strength women back chefs. in the 80s. How about women chefs? If you look, I mean, there yeah. were yeah. just, you know, yeah. I don't know, just barely the number of chefs we have now. Kevin, I was... Wondering, given your constraints on time that we're talking about, you know, and and the size of your restaurant, how do you make a decision on an event that you might participate in or a cause that you're going to support? I always actually check my schedule first with my staff, you know, uh, as long as no one's requested off and I'm able to get an extra set of hands. Uh, And we have a lot of really awesome friends and other chefs in the industry that that are always there that say, hey, we'll come help you do this event. And like Tom Cunanan, Andrew Merkert from Bouchard Saloon, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's always just helping each other. So. Any set of issues, though, that have particular resonance with you or a pull on you, or as long as it's 
but benefiting the community and you have time, you're game. As long as it's helping in some sort of way, then I'm game. For me, especially right now, I just want to help as much as I can, uh, whether it's little or whether it's big. I think it all adds up to the the big picture at the end of the day. Chefs now have a voice to leverage beyond just participating in events and volunteering to help out with different charities. They also are able to um, talk about issues and, and raise their voice. That's such a difference from when we started, you know, and just watching the power of what chefs can say and, and all the different issues. And I'm sure, I mean, the thousands of you know chefs that are represented now are the, the celebrities today. I mean, that's the difference. When you started out 35, almost 35 years ago in 84, I think, chefs were not superstars. Right. They weren't rock stars. Right. You, you, you know, you couldn't name five great chefs. Or maybe, maybe it was five. Maybe it was ten. It's not 500. I mean, I could sit in a train and if someone said, hey, we're going to give you a dollar for every chef you right. can name. You know, I could name 2,000 chefs, I right. think, easily. We're, we couldn't do that years ago. And, you know, no, of right. that 2,000, you know, 400 of them are really great chefs, if right. not more. Maybe they're all great in their own way. But it's different today. You know, people weren't pursuing, as we said earlier, careers in culinary arts. Now chefs have become rock stars, and people are listening to them. They celebrities. I mean, look at look at what Jose Andres has done. I mean, look at the Voice. Right. Look at Michael Solomoff, what he has done. Alan Shia, what they have done. The red, you know, the Rooster Program they've done. You know, feeding people. Yeah, I Philadelphia. Mean, or Philadelphia. And look yeah. at Alice Ward is with the Edible Schoolyard. All these people. And so, coming up in the industry, if you're young and you're coming up, you also know, even if it's not a conscious thing, in the back of your mind. This is an industry that not only can I cook, but I can also get involved with an issue or a cause. It just goes hand in hand. The popularity of chefs and the fact that they can become more engaged in issues. Chefs are very caring for the most part, very caring and giving people. I think some of the most giving people. Look what they're doing. They're feeding feeding people. They're nurturing people. Right. I mean, it's like it's your they're, home. They're it's your family. Care. They're coming. They're taking care of you. That's what a great meal is. It should give you comfort. It should make you feel good. It should make you explore and think. And that's really what a great what, meal does. And that was the basis when we started the organization. We kind of knew, you know, that because chefs feed people for a living, that they're going to really understand and resonate with the idea of, of working on hunger issues. Yeah. And we were right. You know, it's as strong today as it was when we started the organization. I would think stronger. I have to say stronger. Well, Kevin, when you just said, uh, especially right now, you were talking about, you know, how you want to be involved in uh, ev- events that benefit the community. You said, especially right now. Did you mean that, especially right now, because you have more of a voice, or especially right now because of what's going on in the world and people are really looking to make a difference locally. Um, I was curious how you meant that. I mean, it's it's it's, it's both hand in hand. Uh, I think right now I'm at a point in my career to where I'm starting to have a voice. And, you know, I want to continue to work hard to, to make that voice louder and be heard even more. Uh, you know, and with that, it comes with the responsibility of, of doing what's right, giving back, and giving support where it's, where it's needed. Uh, I think a lot of people say local, local, local. But, I mean, it's... What's what's really local? Like the U.S. is local. That's helped uh, the U.S. You know, uh, you know, you can't just help within your city, but you should try to help outside as well. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's how I feel. I feel yes, local is my community, but it's also my city, and it's my state, and it's my country, and by the way, it's my world, exactly. right? Because we're all connected. So it's great to hear you say that. So nothing on Mars for you. Just as long as it's on Earth, you're you're in. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, Lee, we had dinner uh, at one of the New York City Wine and Food Festival events last year, and you and I were uh, seated next to each other, which was a real treat for me. And you were telling me this very poignant story. You know, there were a lot of things that the New York City Wine and Food Festival could have benefited. 
but it benefits two hunger organizations, Share Our Strength and the, the Food Bank of, of New York. And you were telling me about some experience you'd had in your own uh, upbringing. I think as your, I think your dad had a, maybe a, sold a business and moved to Florida and then invested in a restaurant that didn't work out. Tell us about how that impacted you. We never went without a meal. And we never had to worry where the next meal was coming from. But there were tough times growing up. And I have to tell you that we were fortunate to, you know, be able to turn to groups like a food bank growing up. They weren't food banks. Truthfully, it was food stamps. Um, You know, not great times for our family and uh, not times that we talk about or acknowledge. But I think it's probably why I went into the food business and certainly why giving back in the food business is so important to me today. Uh, And and in your family's case, um, you know, it probably was kind of an unexpected reversal, right? I mean, that sounds like your your father had had a good job and you had had a you know pretty high functioning family for a lot of years, and then suddenly something happened and things changed, which most people don't realize that that happens to people in this country. Listen, it happens every day. Go to the. You, I don't have to tell you guys. I mean, the face of hunger is everywhere. You know, you walk by somebody who's food deprived or. or wondering where the next meal is coming from every day. All you do is have to go to a food bank and look. And it's not what you think. It's not that homeless person on the street. It's a single mother struggling to feed her kids. It's a family where a dad lost his job and the mom is working, making a minimal salary to feed their kids. I mean, the face of hunger is so different today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, I'm amazed when I walk into a food bank or when I work at a food bank. And you're on the board of the I'm, food I'm bank. I'm on the board of the food bank for New York City. New York City. But when I go into a, a food kitchen or a pantry of who's coming in, I, I you know, it's your next-door neighbor. It's really that person in the street. It's someone sitting at the nest, next desk, it, it, desk to you. You just don't know what pers- what somebody's situation is no. or where— you know, and that's really. I mean, what it's I invisible. It's, you know, that's a, the thing. Absolutely, hunger just—it doesn't show. It doesn't show. It does not show. And I, I think that's probably the greatest lesson that I learned. Uh, you just never assume anything, and I never do to this day. Tell us a little bit about the Food Bank of the City of New York. It's got to be, given the size of New York City, it's got to be a massive operation that's a lifeline for a lot of New Yorkers. You know, it's it's incredible the work that they do, the number of people that they feed every day, the different organizations that they work with. Um, and the programs. I mean, it's not just about food. They provide a tax service where they help you get your taxes done. It's hygiene programs that they offer. It's so much more. It's the basic dignity of living of everyday life that they provide services for. And it's really impressive. If you, if you look at the people working at the food bank, I'm always so impressed with the numbers of the volume that they move with the minimal amount of staff doing it. And so, most people that are struggling with hunger are not just struggling with that one issue. Of course. Right. So they're they're able to address a bunch of other related issues for families that are struggling. Absolutely. Yeah. Mental health care is yeah. so important. You know, uh, it's all, you know, it all, I, I have to say, you look at what we talked about, you know, our South Florida Festival, the South Beach Wine and Foods Festival, benefits education. 100% of the proceeds go to the <clears throat> School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at FIU. When we were starting our New York Festival 12 years ago and trying to figure out who we should benefit, and I met with a lot of organizations, I met with a lot of chefs, it kept coming back to hunger. Hunger is something that everybody can relate to. I mean, there's a zillion causes, breast cancer, every disease in the book, education, health care. 
But there's something about chefs that resonate with hunger, about where your next meal is coming from and feeding and nurturing people that really resonated with me about why we wanted to benefit and why we thought that benefiting hunger organizations would be the key to our success in New York. Well, you just mentioned mental health. So I want to ask each of you about Anthony Bourdain and chefs and and, and being healthy. Lee, I think you knew him uh, the best of the four of us at this table. Uh, I'm sure you were as shocked as as anybody uh, by his by his death. Um, is there, uh, and, and coming on the heels of Kate Spade's suicide, there's been a lot of attention to, uh, are there pressures on celebrities? Um, we've worked with a lot of chefs who talk about the long hours and some of the, uh, you know, just the pressures and the anxiety that that creates. Is there more we could be doing to provide supports that are necessary um, in terms of keeping uh, culinary professionals healthy? Um, and tell us a little bit about Anthony. I met him because of you, Lee. He was the guest at a roast that we did at one of the New York City Wine and Food Festival. We had Sarah Silverman and Gilbert Gottfried, among others, comedians, roasting him. Uh, I had my wife with me. It was, my wife went to school and was taught by nuns. Uh, so it was probably the raunchiest thing that she had ever experienced. And I tell people that You'd said there was never going to be another one, I think, and maybe until you stopped blushing, and you still haven't stopped blushing from that event. But Anthony Bourdain took it in stride. Tell us, do you remember that? Well, actually, it's interesting. If you remember, Mario was Mario Batali. Mario Batali was the roastmaster. That's right. For that, and Mario got it more or as much yes, as Anthony Bourdain. He did. Remember he the, was the, the subject. Gilbert Godfrey, how yes. fat are you know? Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, you never know what's happening in someone's life. Uh, you know, I had just seen Anthony. We saw him on New Year's Eve. We were dining in a restaurant on New Year's Eve in New York. He was at the next table. Then we saw him in April. He was at the same restaurant. He was at the same table, this time with his girlfriend, who I had met for the first time in April. And I, I think what surprised me most, most about Anthony is that, to me, he seemed happier than ever. His career was in a great place. He was in, he, appear, he appeared to be madly in love with this girl. I think it's Asia, Asia Argenta. Argenta. Um, you know, from everything you saw on social media up until that, I mean, she was posting photos of him. He was posting photos, but you you never know. I mean, so when I got the call last Friday, if someone had given me 10 names and said, who killed themselves from this list of chefs, Anthony wouldn't have been in the top seven or eight. He, hmm. he just, only because I had just seen him and how happy. But as we said, we know that wasn't the case and mental illness, illness masks itself in a lot of different ways. And um I don't know if our industry is any harder, the hours. I mean, obviously, you're on your feet all day. You know, on your feet, you're behind a hot stove. The pressure of, you know, that two-hour, three-hour crunch time obviously gets to you. Um, you know, who know, who knows what was wrong with Anthony? And uh, we'll, we'll never know. And clearly, Kate Spade was not as much of a surprise to people. Um, I didn't know her. I'd, I'd met her several times, and I had seen her out in several times. But when you spoke to people, he she had a dark side, and there were obviously, you know, some issues with Anthony, although we had a dark, he had a dark side, that was also part of what attracted us to him. He was that bad boy, that kind of chef. You know, he was that rock star bad boy chef that right. we all and looked it up seemingly to. overcome a lot of it. it was, um, well, in terms it, of it clearly was challenges act. with drugs. You, and, you know, if you and so forth. If you look at Anthony, you know, Anthony really didn't want to, people to know that he came from an upper middle class family. 
you know, his mom was a copy editor from the New York Times, and his father was a um, in the music industry. You know, right. you thought of Anthony, you thought of someone who grew up on the street. Not the case. He was brilliant. He spoke fluent languages. Uh, and, and Kevin, and, one of the most uh, iconic photos of him that's been circulated recently is with President Obama in, in Vietnam, Vietnam yeah. uh, sampling Vietnamese food, which I know a lot of folks, you know, really felt like they learned a lot uh, from. I don't know if you had known him or met him or if he'd been an influence on you, but talk about... Uh, your sense of how chefs need to stay healthy and what they can be doing. Uh, I never met met Tony, but you know I, I'd like to. I know he influences everybody, especially in my generation and, and future generations, uh, with his book, with his shows, uh, with the way he spoke about everything and how he. Uh, it's you know it's hard to talk about, right? Uh, well, yes. you know he he. You know, what What people, just the average person who watches the show, my daughter and I watched him every season. And, you know, I have a young daughter and I loved that she understood that there's a world bigger than hers, that there are languages and foods and cultures and religions, but everybody came together around food. And even in the show, I don't know, I would say uh, it's, a, I guess it was a two hour show or I guess one hour, but only a small part of it, you know, might have been about food. The rest was about the community. And the people that he was meeting. And so I think for people who don't think globally, you know, especially, it was really both entertaining, educational, and inspirational. Um, I just saw a clip this morning where an old clip that he was talking to somebody, I don't know if it was a psychologist, but it was someone he was laying on a couch, could have been a friend, they were talking about. And he said, I have every reason in the world to be happy. Everything is going my way. And he named a few of the things and he said, but I'm not. And I don't know when that was taken, but obviously it was pretty recent. Clearly he was not. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't think it yeah. was a bad day. I think it was a bad, you know, period for him. And uh, I, we'll never know. I don't think it makes a difference why he took his life. He's a, you know, I don't remember the last time someone leaving us like that that had such an influence. I mean, not just from the, col- you know, Charlie Trotter died of a, tra- you know, pretty tragically. And it was yeah. very sad. You talk, You spoke about it and it moved on. But if you looked at social media this week, everyone from the pres, you know, from Obama, uh, I, I guess even Trump acknowledged it. Um, but the, from all walks of life, how he hit. You know, the, Tony is one of those chefs that what somebody he was always the one people wanted to know what he was like in real life. Yeah, really more than anybody, more than most people, they wanted to know what he was like. Well, I sent a little note to our staff over the weekend, and I was surprised, Lee, that as we were gathering to listen to you today uh, to talk at one of our staff meetings about. Uh, half a dozen to a dozen of our young staff in particular, I'd say your generation, Kevin, came over to me very quietly, said, you know, thanks so much for that note. I got some comfort from it. It was a hard weekend. And people just really, really responded personally, Kevin, as you have. It's just, uh, it was really something for folks. Well, he, people related to him. I mean, he was was very relatable. He was like that bad boy that we all grew up with. And he had a voice. I think that, you know, what he was doing recently with the whole Me Too movement, being so vocal about it. And he really just wanted everyone to have a say at the table. And that's what Anthony was like. Well, and, you know, he was also, I guess we can go on about him, can't we? He was also, you know, he was super, he he knew he was a bad boy. And he kind of, he, he put that into his conversation very comfortably. And you don't see that too much. You don't see someone being so, what we thought looked, he was so comfortable with himself and he, you know, used all kind of language mm-hmm. and said all kinds of things and shared a lot of his past with the public. So I don't think people are used to saying that. And I think that was part of the allure and part of the Probably. attraction. Yeah. Yeah. One He's of the like thing- a Howard Stern. He was like the Howard Stern of food in my mind. 
Well, one of the things we found, uh, and I don't know that it's just true necessarily of the culinary industry, but it's the industry in which we work in at Share Our Strength, is um, one of the things that you know Debbie's responsible for is this amazing 300-mile bike ride called Chef Cycle. And we created it to raise funds for the No Kid Hungry campaign and to um, raise awareness. But one of the things we found, and we've kind of, you know, just it, it, it was an inkling at first, and then it became, you know, something that was so clear from what chefs were saying was that, um, that there are a lot of folks in the industry who really, uh, and I, I don't mean they're in the, the same shape that Anthony Bourdain was in in terms of mental health, but they're, they're struggling to get healthier. They're either struggling with weight, they're struggling with being anxiety, struggling with being able to relax. And so much of the growth of Chef's Cycle turned out to be viral in the old-fashioned sense of, like, pick up the phone and call your friend. Uh, I've never felt better in my life. I've lost 30 pounds. I've stopped staying up late. I've stopped drinking because I want to I finish this ride. Uh, and they've been recruiting each other. And it, it, it uh, I think you know, lit up a, a flare for Debbie and I and some of the, the others at Share Our Strength is, you know, there's an opportunity to, you know, if you're listening to what the market is telling you, uh, people in the culinary industry are telling us, you know, we'd like to find some ways. We're, we give back to the community so much. Uh, we'd be thrilled if somebody gave back to us right. in, in by creating some opportunities to get you know, healthier both physically and mentally. And I think it's going to be a big opportunity. Oh, agreed. Remember, chefs are also some of the most competitive people out there. So it's not surprising that a race or a competition yeah. would be something that they would be interested in. I, I find chefs are very, very competitive. And they're with, and they're with their, their own, right? right? They're with their colleagues. Sure. And there's nothing, I mean, you see it, Lee, more than anybody, but just when chefs are together at an event, and we'll see on Wednesday night just how happy they are to be together sure. at the after. doesn't matter how long they've been on their feet. They want to be together afterwards. For Chef Cycle, after they finish 300 miles, right. a couple of them, you know, cook, right, for everybody else, and which is an extraordinary thing. But I think it's that being together, being challenged, getting fit, and, and doing it for a purpose. Those four things just make it such a powerful so idea. Are, are you reading between the lines here, Kevin, that Lee and Debbie and I are recruiting I you not asking me to, to ride Chef yeah, yeah. Cycle? <laughs> well, no, you're, I'm going to figure out a role for you, though, Lee. So, <laughs> don't you worry. Uh, well, I can be the water boy at uh, <laughs> stop, yeah, the halfway mark. All right. I was looking at a bike yesterday. Yeah. You're, you're fit. And right. It's your generation, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, I, think you'd, I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. So I knew there was an invitation coming. Yeah. Um, subtle. Tell, we were being subtle. Tell us uh, a little bit about what's next for each of you. You've got a 24-seat restaurant that seems to be the most popular thing in the in the in the region. Um, how are you going to manage that? How are you going to kind of keep it going? Any ambitions beyond that, short term or long term, Kevin? Yeah, right now we have a really amazing staff behind us uh, at the restaurant. You know, uh, they've given me the opportunity to do events like uh, like the No Kids Hungry dinner this Wednesday, and uh, and literally right after that, I'm I'm going to Aspen to, to cook at the Food and Wine Festival. Uh, and, you know, it's it's really all thanks to them. Uh, now that I'm freed up, I'm really focusing on my next business venture to be a nonprofit restaurant. Oh, this is exciting. In the Tell D.C. area? More. Tell us more. <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to work it all out in my mind and get it from uh, from here to paper. Uh, I know there's a lot of restaurants that are nonprofits, not right, by design, not yeah. not right? But right. you're going to do it by design. Yeah, so I so I definitely want to open up some sort of fast casual mm-hmm. uh and really be able to kind of replicate it kind of like a like an ant pizza or a sweet green uh, mm-hmm. that's accessible to everybody but then use all that profit and donate it to rotating charities on who needs it mm-hmm. who needs it not that anybody needs it more than the other 
Like, for instance, when Houston had a lot of the flooding, you know, I have a lot yeah. of friends and family in Houston. We immediately opened up all the days we were closed, and we gave every dollar we made Wow, uh, Houston. From Hamitsu? From Hamitsu, yeah. yeah. Really? No. Uh, for, wow. For the, for the Women's March, we donated all our profits that week to Planned Parenthood. To be a chef, it feels good to, to feed others. It feels good good to give back. Yep. And I want to find a way to do it on a larger scale, uh, not just a bunch of these one-offs uh, when it's needed, but we should be doing that all the time. And I think for me, if I could find a way to build a fast casual uh, that's become very profitable, I could help out a lot more. We had on Add Passion and Stir a few months ago a chef from uh, Virginia named Jason Alley, uh, who is just after having three or four restaurants that are successful just opened up, I think, his fourth or fifth, which is a nonprofit restaurant to benefit, in their case, the the food bank in, in Richmond. So somebody that might be a potential ally to to learn from, but that's really exciting to hear. One other thing I'd like to ask you before I turn to Lee in terms of what's next. You've mentioned several times here today just how impressive your staff is, which I'm sure is the case. What do you look for? What's the secret sauce in hiring such great people? Um, that's, you know, at the end of the day, Lee, I'd say your business, our business, it, it always comes down to the people. Um, what, do you, what do you look for when you try to bring in great staff? Yes, technique is important, and knowing your way around the kitchen is important. But when people come stage at the restaurant, uh, a stage is typically someone who will come work for the day. Uh, we'll see if they're a fit for us, and they'll see if we're a fit for them. Every single person that I've hired, they've always stopped and helped me do the dishes towards the end of a shift, mm-hmm. when, and they, they drop their ego at the door, right? They're, they're there for the team. Hey, can I help do dishes? Can I help run food? Hey, can I help prep this? It's, I'm looking for that team player. So you're just waiting for them to reveal themselves, their true selves. You know, I I think a a lot of people can be very selfish sometimes, you know, and as chefs, you know, even I can be very selfish. Uh, But to find someone who could drop all that at the door and really work together to to make something great, uh, that's who I'm looking for. Lee, what's next for you? Besides my train? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, well, the, the, I mean, the New York City Wine and Food Festival just keeps getting right. better and better. Right. And how do you continue to make it better, I guess, is one question. South Beach as well. Um, and is that um, uh, is that going to be your principal focus? I, I think one of the principal focuses. I, I think in both the festivals, to keep it successful, you have to keep it fresh. And I have to, you know, to me, if I'm not motivated, no one else is going to be motivated. So I have to constantly change it up, look for new talent, introduce new events, look for different sponsors to keep it fresh. I think that, you know, I, I think we could probably go on doing what we're doing for the next 10 years, but it won't be exciting to me and I'll lose interest. So what's exciting to me is meeting young chefs like Kevin and figuring out ways to include them and incorporate them in what we're doing. You know, what I love about you, Leah, is you, you have tremendous energy for what you do. It comes across the way you talk about it, which I really admire. And to me, it's inspirational to hear just the, how excited you are, would you say that's because, I mean, can you sort of point to what it is that keeps your energy going about this business? A big the relationship, A big mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't believe that. No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I learned years ago, you got to do what you love and love what you do. And I, you know, I, I love what I do. And every day, you we're know. We're lucky because not everybody can do that. Well, I, I, listen, right? I've always loved what I do. You know, uh, and when I stop loving it, it's time to move on. Um uh, you know, as I said, you know, you, I, I had been my previous job for 20 years, and it was a great job. I just didn't love doing it anymore, mm-hmm. and I still love doing it every day. And I love meeting new people. I love getting out there and listening to all these great causes and finding out pioneers who are really 
leading the way, you know, uh, to bring causes to the attention of all of us. Um, so I think for me, I, I'd be happy uh, just continuing doing South Beach in New York. And obviously, I do have a real job that I'd like to keep for another eight, ten years with Southern Glazers handling communications and CSR. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah. just just give us the thumbnail. We're running out of time, right. but Southern Glazers is a large wine and spirits company in 44 states with, I think, almost 22,000 employees. And you're in charge of all corporate social responsibility and communications? I handle internal and external communications for Southern Glazers, which, as you said, is the largest distributor of alcoholic beverages in the world uh, with 21,500 employees. And we distribute 44 states plus the Caribbean and Mexico, uh, Caribbean and Canada. So uh, I have a busy daytime job and my nighttime job with the festivals uh, really uh, gives me minimal sleep. Can't let your hands full. Can't let either one of them go without our favorite question, which is, uh, Kevin, if you were off tonight and wanted to grab a bite to eat somewhere in D.C., where would it be? Same hidden, to you. Hidden gem we should know that. about hidden other gems. than your own restaurant. Uh, actually, every day I'm off. I always go down to, to Chico right down the street. Really? Do you know it, Deb? No, I haven't been there. I mean, I know of it, but I haven't been there. So uh, Chico? Chico. Uh, Danny Lee, Scott Juno. Scott Juno's. It's the, the Korean. Chinese Chinese Korean. Korean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a little bar, right? Just a little stand? Uh, no, they're, they're in the old uh, DC3 hot dog stand. Uh, I guess hot dog restaurant. They have about 20 seats. Yeah. And when I first moved to D.C., uh, actually Scott was the the one guy I wanted to work for. And I actually never worked for him because I was too uh, chicken shit to apply. <laughs> but I did an event with them last week, so I lived out my, my dream of cooking <laughs> next to Scott. That's great. Lee, where would you take us in New York? I know it's hard to pick among yeah, all hard. of your... You know, I, people your, always are asking us yeah. in the industry, where right. would we eat? I always say, well, what type of food? You have to narrow it down. But like if you were craving something, where would you want to go? God, when I crave something. You're not recommending it. You You're know, just, I, where I, do you want to uh, go? You know, I, if I had the energy when I get back into the city tonight, I'm actually going to a, a book party for Martha Stewart at 6 o'clock, which is at the new restaurant called La Merceria. And we were speaking about Daniel Rose from mm-hmm. Le, Cuckoo. Le Cuckoo. This is his wife's restaurant. Her oh, okay. Name is, her, her name is Marie Ode. Uh, and what's the restaurant called? It's called La Merceria. Okay. okay. Uh, if I have energy after that, I'll probably go to Brooklyn and sit at the bar at uh, Lilia and have like nice. a, and have order like every pasta dish in the menu. See, you, Lee, you and Kevin are professionals. You can talk about food without getting hungry. Probably, I'm starving right now from this conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's been a well, great it conversation. Is, it is late. Yeah. So, and it's late. It's time to eat. Thank you so much for being Thank here, Lee Schrager, from Southern Glazers and the New York City Wine and Food Festival and the South Beach. Uh, Wine and Food Festival. It's really a treat to be a partner with you. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Billy. And we'll see Kevin on Wednesday. Kevin Tan, we're going to see you at our No Kid Hungry dinner, but congratulations on your amazing success at Himitsu. Thank you so much. I'll see you guys Wednesday. Debbie Shore, thanks Thanks. as always for being with us. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Ad Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.